Hi, my name is Winifred Mock, and this is Wynn's Literary Corner. This is episode four of this podcast, where we're going to be looking at how structure and form reflects the content of a text. This is the uh, first episode where we're going to start looking at prose. The first three were more about poetry, but the rules mainly apply to any kind of written text, to be honest. Uh, I just also want to quickly apologize for any sound inconsistencies in this podcast uh, because I have a squeaky chair, noisy neighbors, and this particular microphone I'm not too familiar with. So sorry for any strange sounds that might come through. Okay, so how does structure and form reflect content? Now, the texts that I've chosen today were kind of inspired by a conversation I had with a few friends in a different podcast, Project FIA Goes PC. It was in episode 13 when we were talking about our favorite books. And uh, one of my friends, Pete, aka the Unicorn Slayer, said that he did not understand why 1984 was considered a good book. So today we're going to be looking at 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale, which are both dystopian novels. Before we actually go into these texts, basically structure and form will be shaped by what the text is about. And what we're looking at is genre. So for example, if it's a tragedy, there will be certain things that are in tragedies, perhaps death. There's probably a few moments of dramatic irony where the audience knows something bad's going to happen or is happening that the characters are not aware of. Or if it's a comedy, for example, it will probably end in a wedding. Now, of course, this is not always true. And it depends what the writer is trying to do if he's trying to subvert the genre itself. But generally speaking, there are certain rules in certain genres. In the dystopian genre, just a quick rundown of what this is all about. Generally speaking, a dystopia is futuristic and it kind of goes into a bit of the realm of science fiction, but it doesn't necessarily need science, which is why it's not really, it kind of overlaps, but it's not really science fiction. It's the opposite of a utopia, which is like a perfect place or state that's ideal uh, in regard to politics, the law, and how people live. Dystopia is the opposite of that, where it's usually an oppressive society where the world is controlled by one government or some kind of uh, surveillance. Now, 1984 was one of the first dystopian novels that really encapsulated this idea of Big Brother. And usually the dystopian genre is used by the author to question existing social or political systems. So it's kind of in a roundabout way trying to uh, expose certain flaws in our current society. If we keep going this way, we could end up like that kind of idea. So the extract I'm going to look at in 1984, just to keep it simple, is the first chapter. And I'm just going to start... Uh, on the second page, so it's the one, two, three, four, fifth paragraph from the beginning, and I'm just going to read a short extract to you. This is 1984 by George Orwell. 
Behind Winston's back, the voice from the telescreen was still babbling away about pig iron and the overfulfillment of the ninth three-year plan. The telescreen received and transmitted simultaneously. Any sound that Winston made above the level of a very low whisper would be picked up by it. Moreover, so long as he remained within the field of vision which the metal plaque commanded, he could be seen as well as heard. There was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment. How often, or on what system the thought police plugged in on any individual wire, was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all of the time. But at any rate, they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instinct, in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and, except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. Winston kept his back turned to the telescreen. It was safer, though, as well he knew, even a back can be revealing. A kilometer away, the Ministry of Truth, his place of work, towered vast and white above the grimy landscape. So that is a short extract from 1984. And just looking at the setting of what I've read, we've got the telescreen, we've got the fact that um, you're, you're being watched all the time, you're being listened to all the time, everything's being recorded. There's a sense of being on edge, quote, even a back can be revealing. There's nowhere to hide. And um, we have some visual descriptions of setting. Also in the, on the first page, we've got grimy landscape and vile wind, gritty dust, as well as his hallway is earlier described as smelling of, quote, boiled cabbage and old rag mats. So it's quite a dreary, gray kind of existence. The language that's used in this is almost paranoid. It's simple, it's factual, it's not flowery or descriptive or emotional, because it's almost like the narrator is a third person. Even the narrator is trying to avoid revealing too much, lest someone's listening in. And the theme of control, social control, political control, technological control, is reflected in this language. If you get a chance to read the book, like, I mean, I know Pete didn't really like it, but with this context, with an understanding that this is an alternative existence, this world where you are always being watched, it really isn't that far away from what we have today with CCTVs. It is for our security, but there's always two sides to a coin, isn't there? And 1984 is almost the extreme of this. Now, the issue of language in this book is very important because one of the things they try to implement this new regime is the language of new speak as opposed to old speak. Now, there's actually an appendix in the book that explains what the purpose of new speak is, and it's basically a limited language. It gets rid of everything that's superfluous, and the idea is that when old speak, the way we usually speak today, for example, is forgotten, when this language is forgotten, then the old thoughts and the ideas that come with this language should also be technically unthinkable. Quote, at least so far as thought is dependent on words. If you don't have a word for something, then doesn't the concept of that thing also disappear? Language is very important, especially in 
controlling in 1984. Now, going off on a slight tangent here, that also is applicable for translation and how language interacts with meaning. Because in some languages, we have uh, words that can't be translated into other languages. And there's an implication there that something is lost. There's meaning that's lost because it's just not translatable. The concept can't be translated. The next book we're going to look at is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. This story has actually recently been dramatized and shown on Channel 4 in the UK. And it was really well done. I highly recommend it. Uh, Atwood herself oversaw it. And there are some minor changes in um, well, I wouldn't say changes, I would say additions, because she had uh, a hand in overseeing the creative side. The visuals are amazing, and I just highly recommend it. But if you are studying this book, read the book first, because it's really interesting to compare and see what has been added or changed in the adaptation. Now, in The Handmaid's Tale, just to give you an overview of what this story is about, it's dystopian, so it's futuristic. We're in a place that's somewhere in America, but it's become the Republic of Gilead. So in this society, everyone is basically, pretty much everyone is oppressed. Uh, and in this case, we are looking through the eyes of a handmaid whose purpose is literally to have babies for the next generation because uh, very few people are fertile in this world that is overrun with disease and radiation and lots of terrible things that have happened to this world. Instead of looking at an extract, I'm actually going to look at the overview structure of the book because one of the things uh, in a re oppressive regime is that Things are restrictive. Even the costume, what the what the handmaids wear, uh, they have these sort of bonnets that stop them from having peripheral vision. Their clothes, they're assigned a certain color of clothes. The description in chapter six shows this. We walk sedately. The sun is out. In the sky, there are white fluffy clouds, the kind that look like headless sheep. Given our wings, our blinkers, it's hard to look up, hard to get the full view of the sky, of anything. But we can do it, a little at a time, a quick move of the head, up and down, to the side and back. We have learned to see the world in gasps. So that's a really good quote. We have learned to see the world in gasps. And that's also reflective of the structure. If you just have a look at the contents page, it's quite unique. Chapter 1, night. Chapter 2, shopping. Chapter 3, night. Chapter 4, Waiting Room. Chapter 5, Nap. Chapter 6, Household. Chapter 7, Night. Chapter 8, Birthday. Chapter 9, Night. Chapter 10, Soul Scrolls. Chapter 11, Night. Chapter 12, Jezebels. Chapter 13, Night. Chapter 14, Salvaging. Chapter 15, Night. So, in between, every other chapter is either Night or Nap. The reason for this, in the first line of chapter 7, it says, The night is mine, my own time, to do with as I will as long as I am quiet. So, in this oppressive, overseeing regime, there is no privacy. She doesn't get any time alone. The only freedom, if you can call it freedom, is inside her own head when she is supposed to be sleeping. This is the only time in these chapters of night, or well, there's one that's nap, 
where we have flashbacks and we understand a little bit more about this character's past and how she got here. All other chapters, when it's during the daytime, if she has a wandering thought, it immediately gets cut short. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking about that. Oh, that's not allowed anymore. It's almost self-censorship. What's also interesting about The Handmaid's Tale is that it's almost written because you have to think, oh, why is this person writing this? Is, is it a diary? Is it an account? And actually, Atwood has included an appendix of historical notes. Now, it's, I find it interesting how dystopian novels, to reinforce this reality, this possibility of reality, they really add justification of this world. So the historical notes is, um, it's not part of the text if you're studying it, but it's very interesting to read because it's almost like, oh, uh, we have found this historical document called uh, The Handmaid's Tale that someone wrote, and it reflects uh, on a time in our past. So the historical notes is actually in the future. It reflects on this time in the past where, oh, look how terrible it is. And then questioning how reliable is this as a historical source? It's a firsthand source, right? And you get a very different perspective through the historical notes. So just to quickly conclude, you can see how with the understanding of genre or content, what the story is about, whatever it is about, it should reflect in the structure or the form of the text. Whether it's the language, the sentence structure, the choice of words, such as in 1984, or the physical structure of the book, the chapters, how the narrative or plot is divided or told to us. All of this has meaning. There is always a reason for this choice. My name is Winifred Mock, and this is Wynn's Literary Corner. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and happy reading.